Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The New Commandment of Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 28th, 2013. During the season of Lent, which has just finished, I watched a documentary film called A Place at the Table about hunger in America. America is the world's richest country and biggest food producer, and yet almost 15% of U.S. households, nearly 49 million Americans and 16 million children, struggle to put food on the table. We have thousands of food deserts where it's virtually impossible to buy fresh produce. The number of food banks and soup kitchens has skyrocketed in the last few decades, which is just what many legislators want. Let private charity solve this public problem while they shovel millions of tax dollars to corporate agribusiness. After watching the film, my mind wandered across our country's cultural landscape. We have an epidemic of gun violence. Our broken health care system neglects the poor and enriches doctors, insurance companies, lobbyists, and big pharma. Our government is dysfunctional. A proxy military made up of the poor supports a permanent war economy. America, for example, has 700 bases in 60 countries, and in any one year will conduct operations of some sort in 170 countries. The mass incarceration rates of our penal system dwarf those of other developing countries, including Russia, China, and Japan. Over 20% of our children don't graduate from high school. What we call the entertainment industry churns out a toxic combination of the vulgar and the vapid. And the economic collapse of 2008 showed just how much corporate capitalism privatizes its massive profits and socializes its risks. These are signs of what Gary Wills calls a deeply degraded culture. They're the stuff of dystopian movies like The Hunger Games, novels like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, and historical scholarship like the book Collapse by Jared Diamond. In his recent book called Vanished Kingdoms, A History of State Death, the British historian Norman Davies argues that all political power is transient. He writes, all states and nations, however great, bloom for a season and are replaced. So to imagine that America is somehow an exception is whistling in the dark. And so it's easy to be a pessimist. But here's the paradox. Christians are the ultimate optimists. The epistle from Revelation this week explains why. John writes, 
I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. In other words, Christians are optimists because we believe that the God who created the world will redeem the world. The gospel for this week shows how. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so we see that God's redemption of the world is mediated through the love of his people. When we love one another, the church becomes an exemplar of life out of death, a model of how the old can be renewed. We become a present-day sign of the future new heaven and earth. When God, says the book of Revelation for this week, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's not obvious in what sense Jesus' commandment is new. It's actually an ancient commandment that goes back 3,000 years to the founding of the Hebrew community. We read in Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. But that interesting technical question shouldn't distract us from the call of Jesus to love the world into a present reality of the future. The reading from Acts this week about Peter and Cornelius is one example of how God makes the old new. Peter was a conscientious Jew who maintained his ritual purity. He says, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But in a vision, he learned that even the Gentiles are accepted by God. And therefore, he says, I should not call any man impure or unclean. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God. In his commentary on Galatians 6.10, the 4th century church father Jerome describes how John the Evangelist, author of the Gospel in the book of Revelation, preached at Ephesus into his 90s. Christian tradition holds that he died in about the year 100 CE. At that age, John was so feeble that he had to be carried into the church at Ephesus on a stretcher. Then, when he could no longer preach a normal sermon, he would lean up on one elbow. The only thing he said was, little children love one another. People would then carry John back out of the church. This continued for weeks, says Jerome, and every week he repeated his one-sentence sermon, Little children, love one another. Weary of the repetition, the congregation finally asked, Master, why do you always say this? John replied, Because it's the Lord's command. 
And if this only is done, it is enough. The necessary connection between claiming to love God and demonstrating that we love our neighbor was so embedded in the early Christian traditions that we find this teaching repeated almost verbatim by Paul, by James, and most memorably by John himself in 1 John 4, 20-21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In his book of poetry called Leavings, 2012, Wendell Berry's poem Prayer gives us a way to begin. His poem reads as follows. I know that I have life only in so far as I have love. I have no love except it come from thee. Help me, please, to carry this candle against the wind. For books this week, I review Blaine Harden. The title, Escape from Camp 14, One Man's Remarkable Odyssey from North Korea to Freedom in the West. New York Viking, 2012, 205 pages. A satellite photograph of the Korean Peninsula at night shows South Korea ablaze with lights, and then, as if someone drew a line at the 38th parallel, North Korea ink black, except for the tiny dot of Pyongyang. North Korea is a country where public displays of affection are prohibited. International aid workers are not allowed to study Korean. The internet does not exist. Doctors operate in hospitals without electricity, heat, water, or antibiotics. Schools have no books or paper. Postal workers burn the mail for heat. Attendance at public executions is compulsory. History is reinvented wholesale. Religion is forbidden. People step over dead bodies in the street. And, in the late 1990s, upwards of two million people who died in a famine. Thanks to the great leader, Kim Il-sung, and his son, Kim Jong-il. Sudan, Congo, and Laos all have higher per capita income than North Korea. As many as 200,000 citizens also languish in North Korean labor camps. Many thousands have perished in them. In fact, you can see exactly where these camps are by using Google Earth. Camps 15 and 18 are for re-education of prisoners. Camp 14, the subject of this book, is what's called a complete control district for irredeemables who are worked to death. There are about 15,000 prisoners in Camp 14. 
Blaine Hardin, a correspondent for the Washington Post, tells the remarkable story of one of them, Shin Eun Gyun. It's remarkable because Shin was born in Camp 14. And so far as we know, he's the only person born in a labor camp to escape. According to Hardin, just two people other than Shin are known to have escaped from any political prison camp in North Korea and made it to the West. Shin documents the worst sort of human atrocities you might imagine, including six months in an underground dungeon and being roasted alive over a fire. Experts who vetted him believe his story. A year after he escaped, he began a diary, which re eventually resulted in a memoir that was published in 2007 in South Korea, and, interestingly, widely ignored. Her Hardin's book has enjoyed a different fate. It's already been translated into 23 languages and made numerous bestseller lists. In addition to his many interviews with Shin, he incorporates the insights of human rights activists, other defectors, refugees, and intelligence experts. When Shin escaped Camp 14 on January 2, 2005, he was 23 years old. He knew nothing about the outside world. He had no idea where to go or what to do. It's not been easy, he says. He concludes, I'm evolving from being an animal, but it is going very, very slowly. I escaped physically. I have not escaped psychologically. The author is Blaine Hardin. The title, Escape from Camp 14. For movies this week, I review a documentary it's called Jean-Michel Basquiat, from 2009. Basquiat lived from 1960 to 1988. When Jean-Michel Basquiat died of a heroin overdose at the age of 27, he left over a thousand paintings and a thousand drawings. According to Wikipedia, in 2012, for the second year running, Basquiat was one of the most coveted contemporary artists at auction, with over 80 million euros in sales. People who knew him when he was young said he was very ambitious and that he wanted to be famous, but few would have predicted his legacy as a cult phenom. In a period of two to three years, Basquiat rose from obscurity as a penniless graffiti artist who had dropped out of school in the 10th grade, to having his paintings displayed around the world. But the meteoric rise of the comet flamed out just as quickly, and Basquiat died an isolated and troubled man. This documentary film interviews curators, collectors, dealers, artists, and friends to trace the rise and fall of one of the most controversial artists of his generation. I watched this film on Netflix streaming.
Once again, the title, Jean-Michel Basquiat, from the year 2009. And finally, for poetry, in the month of April, we've posted the famous poem, The Daffodils, by William Wordsworth. Wordsworth lived from 1770 to 1850. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats o'er high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. William Wordsworth, The Daffodils. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 28, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.